0: Today is the Fellowship's National Day of Prayer, and as we, before I preach then, I'd like us to pray for our fellowship. We belong to the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in Canada, and as a fellowship, we just celebrated our 70th year of collaboration collaboration of ministering the gospel together, of serving the Lord wherever he has placed us. At the National Conference, Steve Jones, the president of the fellowship, talked about the fellowship values, the values that bring us together as churches under the umbrella of the fellowship. We are people of the book. We are independent and self-governing, we are committed to planting churches, and we are committed to sending missionaries to plant churches globally. That has been the raison d'etre for the fellowship. And as we enter into the 70th or the 71st year of the fellowship and beyond, Steve Jones also issued a call to action in light of our values. And I think these are worth remembering and praying for and putting into practice. He calls us then to be a people of prayer and of the book. I was especially convicted by this as we recognized we we really need to spend more time in prayer. And one of the challenges that he issued was to set apart, to set your alarms to 10.02. 10:02 10:02 in the morning, so that at 10:02 in the morning, you can take 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes, to pray for our fellowship, for the churches of our fellowship, for the gospel to go out wherever we are, and for the for the nation of Canada to pray for revival. So I encourage you. Uh, th- you can do that later when you get home. <laughs> in the morning, we'll join our brothers and sisters in the fellowship, praying for the work of the gospel through the fellowship. So be a people of prayer and of the book. Second, to value interdependence and collaboration while remaining independent and self-governing. To have a plan for planting churches and to partner with other churches, to plant disciple-making churches globally. And I hope that as a church, we would embrace this call to action, to pray for it, and by the grace of God, to put it into practice. The Lord is doing great things through the fellowship, and one of the more critical aspects of the work of the fellowship that we are a part of is actually the revision of our statement of faith that has stood the test of time for the last 70 years, but we recognize that in light of current cultural circumstances, we need to revise it, to strengthen it, so that it speaks meaningfully to our day. And I'm your representative to that committee, so we would ask for your prayer as a committee. It's a big job. And we we are hopeful that by the grace of God, we would be able to produce a revised affirmation of faith that would serve our fellowship for the next 70 years. Um, As well, we are, as a fellowship, the strongest church planting movement in all of Canada. And over the last few years, we have planted, or over the last 10 years, I think we've planted around 100 churches throughout Canada, and it's very encouraging. Um, Feb Central just appointed our church planting director, turned him into our regional director, and I'm hopeful that our region would continue in that church planting movement. All right, so let's go to prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you That indeed we are a people who dwell together in unity, not just as a church, but that as a church we dwell in unity with other churches, and our unity is not grounded on pragmatic considerations. Our unity is grounded in a common embrace of the gospel and a common commitment Propagating the gospel, not just here in Guelph or in Canada, but around the world. And we thank you, Father, that our fellowship has been at work for the last 70 years, and you have graciously, sovereignly blessed the work of the fellowship. We thank you for how we we as a church have benefited from the fellowship. And Father, we would ask that we as a church would also be a blessing to the fellowship, to the other churches around us who are part of the fellowship and beyond those churches. We ask, Father, that you would truly make us a people of prayer and of scripture, committed to putting your word into practice, prayerfully relying upon you for strength. We pray that as a church and as churches, we would work together to see the gospel spread, to see churches planted, and not to see those planted churches as competition, but as fellow laborers in the gospel. And that our church planting efforts would not be restricted to Ontario or Quebec or to other parts of Canada, but that it would be a church planting effort in every nation so that we would see the gospel vision come to fruition of every tribe, tongue, people and nation being discipled, serving the Lord, giving praise to His name. Father, thank you for the way you have put us in this fellowship. And as we continue the work of the fellowship, we also commit to you our effort to revise the affirmation of faith. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your strength for the team so that we would be able to express your truth well, to express it accurately but also to express it with delight so that those who read our affirmation of faith would come away from that reading delighting in the wonder of your greatness. And Father, we pray for the work that we are doing as a fellowship. You know the struggles that we face, the challenges we face in this culture, in this context. Father, give us courage, But let that courage be a winsome courage, a winsomeness that comes from knowing the grace of Christ and being transformed by that same grace. So that even as we represent you as ambassadors of Christ to the people around us, they would see the truth of Christ reflect, they they would hear the truth of Christ, they would also see the character of Christ reflected in our churches and in our people. Father, we recognize that only you can do this. And so we ask that you would work in our midst by your Spirit to transform us into the likeness of Christ so that as a movement, as a fellowship, and as a church representing the fellowship, we might reflect the glory, the goodness of Jesus The glory and honor of his matchless name. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll ask you now to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 will be covering the whole passage. Now, last week we talked about having a gospel culture that makes the church a kind of Rivendell. Lord of the Rings fans, you know that Rivendell was a peaceful place for healing and for recovery. And that's what we'd like the church to be. That's the point of our welcome. But we also recognize that that's not always the case. In fact, the very first time I preached during the morning service was a complete surprise not only to the congregation, it was actually a complete surprise to me. I had not I was scheduled to preach in the evening service, I was not at all prepared to preach in the morning service. Um, and the reason why I had to preach the morning service was that our pastor didn't show up. And so my fellow leader said, well, dude, you're you're preaching Sunday evening. You might as well do what you're preaching this morning. And so I had to. Uh, The night before, what had happened was the night before, together with the pastor, we had met with leaders of the church who had resigned their positions because they weren't getting along with the pastor. In fact... The very reason I was one of the leaders of the church was that those guys resigned and they put the young guys in place and said, well, see if you can manage, see if you can handle the church with these guys. These were seasoned, theologically literate men. They did not use any bad language. And looking back, they actually had valid concerns about the pastor. But sadly, they showed very little grace. And in that meeting, they proceeded to tear our pastor to shreds. They criticized his actions. They denigrated his character. They questioned his competence. And they left him so devastated. We came out of that meeting. He just slumped down on the pavement that night. And the following morning, he could not show his face at church. And so I had to preach. I think we'd all agree that that ought never to happen in a church that proclaims the gospel. And in this passage, James is telling us that living faith should manifest itself by God-honoring speech. That promotes peace. Our church culture must show the glory of God's grace as we speak to one another in wholesome, life-giving ways, even when we are rebuking one another. After all, according to James 1.18, God chose to to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a firstfruits, of all he created. We are the first fruits of the new creation. That means that we are to be God's movie trailer, advertising the beauty of the new creation to a watching world. And so we have to let this text sink in and reshape our speech as it reshapes our hearts. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Now, James begins this passage by warning aspiring teachers that to be a teacher is to have greater accountability before God. You find that in verse 1. After all, to whom much is given, much is required. Now please understand this is not meant to give you an excuse for not helping with kids' ministry. Mark Lauder's going to kill me. <laughs> this is not to discourage you from that. Neither is it meant to weed out the people who would like to teach or preach. We, I wish there were more people who could teach and preach. But during the time of James, people wanted to be teachers because it would give them power and prestige. And so, James challenges their motivation by orienting them to the responsibility that is involved. And then he challenges them to assess their own suitability to teach by evaluating the way they spoke to others. And his challenge is in verse 2. If they could truly honor God every time they opened their mouths, they, then they must truly be mature. They must be qualified to teach. But of course, in verse 2, James is absolutely certain they would fail the test, just as, well, all of us would. I think all of us suffer from varying degrees of foot-in-mouth disease. James says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body, in check. And that leads him to challenge us about the way we speak. To help us understand the importance of aligning our speech to God's standards, James gives us two images of control, the bit for a horse and the rudder of a ship. In our day, we would speak of the steering wheel on a car. They are small things that control powerful forces. And James extends the metaphor to our tongue. Our tongues are small, but it wields, they, are, are, they, they wield tremendous power. Leaders can use words to unite a group towards a God-given purpose. We can use our words to comfort the hurting and strengthen the weary. But as all of us have experienced, Our words can also destroy, right? And that's why James in verse 6 and 7 describes the tongue as a fire, a world of evil. And we've all experienced the toxic effects of uncontrolled speech. The way we speak to people harms and poisons relationships. And we've all been hurt by things people have said. And sadly, well, it's not as if we're not guilty, are we? We've all been guilty of hurtful and unkind speech. And James takes the argument one step further. The tongue is not just powerful and destructive. It is, it is destructive because the tongue is out of control. Verse 7 and verse 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. Look at verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Since we've tamed all kinds of animals, some of you have pets. They're tame. They're sort of under your control. But we can't control our tongues. And it's not just that we take that we open our mouths to take my right foot out and put my left foot in, we don't just embarrass ourselves. James says in verse 8, we spew deadly poison. Our words hurt. Our words kill. James says, verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, We curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. We're double faced. To put it another way, we are capable of singing loudly during the service and then gossiping about the song leader after the service. Well, hopefully, not in Laura's case. (laughs) See, this two facedness, this dichotomy, is unacceptable. Living faith means we must stop tearing people down. Instead, we use our words to build people up. Unkind speech has no place in the community of those who have experienced a new birth. And that's why James has these rhetorical questions In verse ten, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives, or a grape vine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It is incongruous that people with new hearts would have such horrible words. And so our forked speech, our two-faced speech, is reflective of our own divided hearts. After all, Jesus says, Matthew 12, 33 to 37, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. That's why he gives that warning in verse 1 to the teachers. You see, our words reflect our hearts. The true state of our hearts. Our tongue trouble is but a window into our continuing sinfulness. And those of you who don't talk much, please don't think that you're off the hook. You might be saying, oh, thank goodness, I'm a very quiet person. That's for them. James is actually concerned about the way we communicate. And so his words also apply to our nonverbal communication. His words apply to our tone of voice, to the thoughts that we have in our minds that reflect itself in the way we look at people, in the way we react to people. James is concerned about that diary that nobody's allowed to see. Your Facebook, your Instagram posts, your posts on X, your blogs, if there's still a blog. All of these things expose the contents of our hearts. And Jesus himself says, God holds us accountable for our communication. Now, frankly, that's a scary thought. And I am very grateful that Jesus died and rose again precisely because of my sinful heart that expresses itself in sinful words. That's my only hope. Well, we can't leave it there. The challenge of James is for us to reflect the grace of God in the way we communicate. So what's our solution? Well, it is very true. No man can tame the tongue. No woman can tame the tongue. But God can. The only way for us to learn to communicate well it's through God's transforming grace. And God, in His grace, from chapter 1, has already said, God gives wisdom to all who ask. Trouble is, we're all so blinded by our pride, we don't acknowledge our need. We just excuse it as, oh, I, that's not me. I didn't mean to say that. right? You caught me at a bad, on a bad day. This was a bad moment. I'm sorry. We don't want to admit that the trouble lies deeper than the surface circumstances. The trouble is found in our hearts. And so James challenges us in verse 13 to prove our wisdom by by showing our deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Wisdom. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And we've had Dr. Barker talk to us about the wisdom literature. One of the themes in wisdom literature is that the wise person speaks as a tree of life. The speech of a wise person is life-giving. So building on that, James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And in saying this, he cuts to the pride and self-centeredness that lies at the roots of our heart's desire for prestige and power that results in our hurtful, unwholesome speech. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Bitter envy is our passion to seek the best for ourselves, regardless of what's good for others. Bitter envy is our desire to always be on top, to be king of the hill And it's rooted in the selfishness that always wants the biggest piece and the last word in any conversation or quarrel. It's that desire in all of us to get what we want and for things to be done our way. And we all know how to get that in very subtle ways, right? It's not obvious, but it's there. And selfish ambition is that self-seeking pursuit of power by any means possible. I like the way Quentin Schultz describes it in the context of communication. We love to listen to ourselves. We like to tell others what television programs to watch. This was way, way back when there was just TV. (laughs) And which poetry to decide. To recite, I guess now, it's which blogs or websites to peruse. We speak quickly and arrogantly. We are convinced that we are right when someone disputes the meaning of our words. How dare someone challenge our intentions? In some of our darker moments, we find prideful pleasure and spiteful relief in others' inability to communicate. (laughs) Ha! Selfishness destroys many relationships because it offers little or no room for the grace of humble forgiveness. Instead of harnessing our tongue for the joy of shalom, we smugly challenge God and sow critical seeds of conflict and envy. Did you see what she did? Using the pen, the computer, the camera, and the stage, we launch ego-filled messages for others to appreciate and extol. Playing God, we communicate selfish agendas and personal pride. And that's why James goes on and says that our wisdom that is reflected in the way we speak is earthly Unspiritual and demonic. It is the anti God mentality from which Jesus came to save us. See, Jesus died and rose again so that he might replace our self promoting pride with self giving humility. And James' call to humility was a radical demand even during Greco Roman times because the Greeks and Romans did not consider humility and meekness to be virtues. But we are to be countercultural because living faith demands that we reflect the humility of Christ even in the way we speak. See, humility begins with understanding our unworthiness before God. That's why Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To recognize the majesty and greatness of God is to be cognizant of our unworthiness. So that there is a kind of terror. Because, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. But at the same time, there is this assurance in Isaiah 6 because the angel, God sent an angel to take a coal from the altar and put it to Isaiah's lips and says, You're cleansed. Because the more we understand that we are debtors to the grace of God, the more we want his glory and purposes to prevail. And that God-centered desire for God to be glorified then frees us from our selfish ambition. It replaces it with God's ambition. And that allows us to sacrifice our rights to seek the good of others. And as we now begin to desire what is best for others, that changes the way we speak to people. We let go of our pride, our pride that makes us harsh and impatient with people, replacing it with kindness and patience. And yes, I understand, we live in the already, not yet. We have new hearts, but these hearts are being made whole by Christ, and because our hearts are being made whole by the Spirit's work in our hearts, then we need to be growing in humility by growing in godly wisdom. And that's the the work that the Spirit is doing in us. And that's our comfort. This is not something that we produce on our own. It's not a matter of biting your tongue. If you keep biting your tongue, you won't have much of it. And the problem is your heart is still there. It has to be a change of heart. So James now goes on to unpack the characteristics of wisdom from heaven or from above as the cure for our tongues. He says, it is pure. Notice um, verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It is free of moral defect, and it is singularly focused on God. And because that wisdom from above is God-centered, it is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And to be peace-loving is to pursue wholeness in relationships, to be a people who make peace, who bring about reconciliation. Ed Stetzer at the National Conference challenged us from 2 Corinthians 5. To remind us, our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. We bring natural enemies together. Because that is what God has done for us in Christ. So we don't just avoid conflict. As one author says, The righteous do not merely keep the peace which sometimes means failing to confront problems that should be addressed. Rather, they make peace, which may mean temporarily disrupting a community in order to deal with root problems so that genuine peace may ensue. But even in that disruption of the community, there will be a gentleness and willingness to listen to biblical reason as we attempt to address the root problems. See, godly wisdom means being willing to be challenged by others and actively seeking correction and accountability. Moreover, We must be determined to show mercy and forgiveness in true reconciliation because that's what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf, isn't it? And it must be done without hypocrisy because our ultimate goal is always the glory of God and the good of the body. See, this is the beauty and health-giving shalom that God intends in saving us. And all of us here need to repent of our pride and our selfishness that expresses itself in unkind speech so that we may learn the wisdom that comes from above. And the reason why we can admit that our hearts are divided in this sense is that God knows better than we do how sinful we are. That's why he gave us this text. And the great thing is that he, knowing the depths of our depravity, loves us anyway. That's why Jesus died and rose again, isn't it? Because we didn't just need an example. We didn't just need a coach. We need a Savior. The way we speak to one another at home tells us every single day, we need a Savior. (sighs) So we don't need to deny our sin or hide it. See, the more we acknowledge our sin, the more we grasp the lavishness of God's forgiving love. And the more we are gripped by that same love, so that we learn to love Him back and desire what He desires. See, God, in His unfailing love, is determined to remake us in the image of Christ. And He is constantly at work in us to make our divided hearts whole. He has already invaded our lives. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, God has already invaded our lives through his Spirit, and he is tearing down the walls that our egos build so that we could be a community that increasingly reflects the beauty of his purposes. Or to put it another way, God is actively actively at work embedding gospel culture that speaks wholesome, kind words into the DNA of our church. I see it happening. But as we said last week, the biggest room in the world is room for improvement. So by the grace of God, let's keep submitting ourselves to Him. So that we might learn the wisdom that only He can impart. So that our church would truly be a church of, that brings healing and wholeness to all those that God brings into our midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you know our hearts. It is indeed a scary thought to recognize that you know, you know us so well, that there is not a word in my mouth, on my tongue, that you, O oh Lord, have not known it before I even thought it. It's a scary thought to contemplate that we will be judged by our words. So we we truly are damned. And yet we thank you. Despite the fact that you know how damned we are, you know how filthy and depraved our hearts are. Yet you have chosen to love us before time began. So that it's a love that will never be taken away from us because it's not grounded on our worthiness. It is grounded in your sovereign determination to love us. And so there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that that love brought our Savior to the cross. So that the second person of the triune God humbled himself to become a human being while remaining God. So that he may give himself a sour sacrifice and substitute. So that united with him through faith, we have died to sin, we have risen again to new life. You've given us new hearts. And your spirit is constantly making himself more and more at home in us. He's changing us. So that our words, our communication, would become increasingly gracious, increasingly gentle, increasingly reflective, of the character of Jesus, our Savior. But you know how many times we have failed, and so we ask that you would forgive us. Convict us, Father, of our patterns of speech that do not glorify you. And show us by your word the right way to speak. As you change our hearts, to reflect your grace. And Father, we pray for those who are here who recognize that the way they speak reflects a heart that has not experienced your grace. We pray that you'd work in them, cause them to see not just the reality of their sinfulness, but show them the beauty of Jesus. Cause them to run to Christ for refuge so that they may know his grace, his love, so that they may join in praising our King. Father, thank you for the work that you are doing in us. May we, in the coming days, reflect that work as our speech is increasingly characterized by kindness, by encouragement, by love that we would be a people who speak the truth in love. This is something that you alone can bring about. And we thank you that you are actively at work to bring this about. So we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing.